Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources, so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I say that every week because my friends in Canada are freezing their bones off. But down here, it's beautiful and sunny, and we're going to have winter this weekend for one or two days. (laughs) I'll get my warm woolly flippers out, and it'll be fun. But today's guest is a really extraordinary lady. And like many of my guests, I have met her, but I don't know her very well, and that's why we're going to dig into her her life, and her mission. And everybody, I'd like to introduce to you my new friend, Dr. Gay Lang. Gay, are you there? Yes, ma'am, I am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm so glad you're here. Miss Gay, you come to us from the Houston, Texas area. And I met you when I went out to Dallas in August for a book launch for your book, Seven where we met with Michael Butler and Beyond Publishing. And it was so cool because I didn't know you. You didn't know me. I didn't know anybody else in the room. I'd never met Michael. But I looked at you and I was like, she is one nifty lady. I loved your colors, your confidence, and I loved your blue heels. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not a shoe person, but I thought, those were so pretty. And of course, that was the day that my shoe broke. I don't know if you remember that, but the heel fell out. I remember that. It sure did. <laughs> I was walking around barefoot. But that was so much fun. And I just, I loved your confidence about who you were and what you were doing. And, and I think maybe your husband was there. I know you said he's on oh, the he line was. today. Mm-hmm. He's on the line today. But Gay, thank you for being my guest. Thank you for, for allowing me to reach into your life today to find out a little bit about who you are and what your mission is today and what it has been for the last, for your whole life. It's been tremendous. So I'm not going to read your bio because we're going to go into it and I want you to explain to everybody who you are. So as I do my show, we go to your background. We're going back a few years, Miss Gay, and I want to hear where you grew up and a little bit about your family and where you fell in that family line. Okay. I am Dr. Gay Lang. I am from a family of 12. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. My mother had nine girls and three boys. One girl died at a crib death, so that left us 11. And out of 11 children, my mother has 14 college degrees, all the way up to an MD. But my mother did not play games. 
she said, if you can act crazy, I can be crazier. So we all understood that. So we did exactly what she told us to do. So there was no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to eat this. We didn't have that kind of drama in our house. With 12 people, you better eat what was on that plate and be happy you had it. So I didn't grow up with a lot of things financially, but I grew up with a wealth of confidence. My mother told me at a very young age I was the smartest, I was the brightest, I was the most beautiful, I was the most talented. She poured that kind of information into my head as a very young child to all of us, which is why most of us are very successful in our skills and our, in our work line. And in terms of line in the family, my mother had seven of her children. And then seven years later, I came along. So I'm almost like the firstborn of the last group of children. So I have that firstborn mentality. You can count on me. I'm very organized. I'm very persistent. If I want to do something, I set a goal and I do it. I take care of everybody. I'm always looking out for the other guy. What do I need to do to make things right? That's just who I am. And it kind of exudes into my workplace because I take that same attitude with me, which is why my career has been the way it's been over these last years. So being from New Orleans, I went to a private school, St. Mary's Academy. We all went to private schools until we are in eighth grade, and then after that we had a choice. We could leave and go to public schools, but I stayed from K through 12 to St. Mary's Academy in New Orleans, and it's a finishing school for girls. And I then finished from a historically black college, Dillard University in New Orleans, um, it's a historically black college because a long time ago, African-Americans could not attend white colleges. And there were 105 of them in the United States. Uh, and I think we still have about 100 or 102, something like that. But they're very small private colleges, though, you know, most of us at that time went. Some of them, you probably know, Xavier University produces some of the uh, best doctors, African-American doctors in the United States. So... That's where I grew up, and that's where I come in the family line, and that's a little bit about my background. When you were little, now you, you went to private school, so there was a lot of uh, focus on education. What did you do? Did you like sports? Did you like to read? Did you play music? Um, well, my, <clears throat> my family is pretty talented, and I'll tell you a little family story. Because it was so many of us, we couldn't go a lot of places because it cost money to do all those things. So we had talent shows on the weekend. Everybody could sing, dance, tell a story, tell a joke. Three of them played in the band. My baby brother played in the band. My little sister played in the band. And my middle sister played in the band as well. The rest of us either were cheerleaders, and then my baby sister was a dancer as well. So am I. We were in talent shows all over the city. And they used to say, like, Venus and Serena. So who's going to take second place? Because those two have first. <laughs> So it was always that kind of thing. So I like dancing, I like singing, and I like writing poetry. And I haven't written poetry, and I say that off the cuff because there was a time every weekend I would just sit around and write poetry. Never published any of them. I just wrote love stories. Sometimes I wrote about life. So I like writing, and uh, poetry is one of my ways to kind of express my creativity. But I haven't done it in many, many years. I can't remember the last time I wrote. And that's, that's one of the things I miss about when, when you get a, a real job and work every day, you just kind of some of your fun stuff gets left by the wayside. Sounds like that's your next project is to sit down and uh, find out where those old poems were. 
Uh, they're somewhere around. <laughs> that sounds like another book. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, that's you know that's where the uh, the confidence comes. That poise that you had, you you showed up as a dancer as a child, and that's really important. I think so many things that we do as kids will manifest later on in life, and uh, I, I, I get tickled by the size of your family. It's it's a lovely sized family, and and we were just talking about farms earlier, and, and a friend of mine has a big <laughs> family, and enough kids to raise the run the farm, so. But your guys were very well um, disciplined, which is important, and educated, which is super important. I take it you like to read? Sometimes I do. Uh, Debbie, I hate to say this, and I'm so embarrassed. Uh, Well, everybody's going to resonate with what I'm getting ready to say. When you get a real job, and you really are moving up the ladder, and you really are hustling up every day, the fun things like reading and writing – you, you tend to just focus on the topic. Like I'm an expert in my field because I study it a lot, but I don't study anything else. Some people are well-read. That means they read a little of this, they read a little of that, and they can sit down and read books and relax. <clears throat> I don't know if I have that luxury. Somehow I always feel like I have to stay up on my game. So when I'm reading, everything I read has to do with something I'm interested in either pursuing or something I'm doing currently or something I want to do. You know, it's just it, that fun reading is gone. However, I will tell you for the new year, I did make a, make a commitment to myself. And the name of the book that I'm reading is called The God Wink Effect, Seven Secrets of God's Signs, Wonders and Answers and Prayers. So I started reading that for the new year to force me out of the habit of reading material for my job. That's a good focus, and it's interesting that you said that about losing the fun reading. Um, I found the same thing this last, I don't know, 10 years after I remarried and I just got busy, and then between work and and the nonprofit and all that, I'm not reading as much as I did after my, when my husband passed away in 2010, but what I found is what I love now is listening to audible books, because I do a lot of driving, and I pull out the fun books. When I'm driving, I'm listening, and, and you know, I hear, hear your accent, your southern accent. I love the novels that are in the South and in you know, like North Carolina, and it's got the North Carolina at the um, the accents, and I, and that's where my joy comes when I'm driving and I'm listening to those stories. And it may be four well, or fifteen good. minutes, but try that because it takes you away from the business, and it's the fun side. Yeah. So, you have to have some fun, some relaxing, something different to read, something to feed the brain that is different. Okay, so we're going to jump right off of that into your story. Your story is called Seven, a sorority story. Mm-hmm. How in the world did you get into this story? It's great, well, you know, but I want to hear thank you. the why. Thank you. Well, I think um, this has been coming for a while. I thought about doing something to talk about the history of uh, a sorority. I can't mention the name because it's a fictitious story. This story is based off of history, so it's called a historical fiction because everything here is not true. However, I wanted to kind of recall what could have happened back then. I didn't live in the 1920s, but these women did, and they did something phenomenal They went against a lot of harsh racism at the time, a lot of bigotry at the time, and somebody needed to kind of tell their story in a different way. So it's a historical fiction. 
And the people in the book are my seven siblings. Those seven women I told you I had as sisters, they're in the book. So every woman's personality in this book has one of my sister's personalities. And the woman who is reading or telling the story, the young lady, Imani, that would be part me and part maybe one of my other siblings who's kind of like me. And then the woman, the mother of Imani, is most like my mother, very sophisticated, very classy, know the right things to say. So that's how I got into it. I wanted to tell the story, but I wanted to be creative. I wanted it to kind of highlight the key points, but most importantly, the courage it took to do that. Today, it takes courage to live, believe it or not. Every day that you live, you take a courageous moment to walk out there and say, I'm going to live my life today. It's difficult. The world is changing at a rapid rate, and we're no longer just in the United States. We're dealing globally with people. The Internet has made everything reachable and touchable. So everybody's a victim almost, can be, every day just getting on the Internet. So with that in mind, I wanted to make sure I highlighted the courage they had back then to rise up and do something that had never been done before. Tell me one thing that you found was one of the most difficult that the women went through. Well, in the story, because it was in the 1920s and racism was a reality, they went to an all-white school and there were only a few of them there. So their social life was confined to the seven or eight of them or 12, however many was on the campus in the story. So the story tells them there was only a few on the campus, which meant they had to find each other after class every day and huddle together. They couldn't drink out of the water fountains. They had to go across campus, and when they did, the fountains were broken. So if they were thirsty, oh well. And so one of them in the book drank out of the fountain anyway because she was so thirsty. She was caught drinking out of the fountains, and she was badly beaten by students at the campus. So when I told that story, that could have really happened. Even though I wasn't there, I could envision that being true because there were faucets and fountains in the South with white only and black only fountains or Negro where you go to the back. So that story, just reading books and having listened to my parents, my older siblings. So I was able to craft what I thought it might look like during that time. So that was one of the things I thought was very pungent. It brought back a reality And when I think about fast forward to this century we live in, we don't have that kind of uh, band of not drinking out of fountains, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't mean we're not under pressure, same same kinds of pressure, but different kinds of things and events that are occurring that causes us to have discomfort, feel left out, feel marginalized. That's true. And I I was... I'm looking at the book, and if you, the, view, uh, the listeners would like to get a hold of it, it's on Amazon. And the other place I have it on my website as well, www.workplacerestorativepracticesinc.com. I'll put a slide out there too. And so it, that leads me into your whole life has been education. And you started yes, off as a teacher and then moved up the ranks. So you've seen the whole process, and, and I, I've spent time, I mean, I have four children, so I spent a lot of time in schools. 
never taught as a teacher teacher, but it was a substitute teacher, but you know, did a lot of things in the schools when the kids were little. I saw a lot of this. I, my kids were raised in Florida. Parts of Florida are very diverse, parts are not. Where we live is, my kids went to a magnet school, uh, bust on the other side of town, but it was the most extraordinary school, most extraordinary teachers, and what they did was amazing. So in your practice of education, what have you seen as the, the biggest stumbling block for kids oh. learning today? And it's changed. It's changed in the last 20, 30 years. You know, but it changes every week if you ask me, but there you go. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> at the core of it, at the core of it, Debbie, I wrote this book called Colorado Restorative Justice, Voicing Our Realities. It is a Benjamin Franklin Silver Award winning book. It was hailed as one of the best books in multicultural and diversity topics last year by um, Benjamin Franklin uh, Independent Book Reviews. And in that, I wrote a chapter about my journey as an educator. And it talked about my need to always have to prove myself as an educator, and particularly as an African-American woman, and I'm holding a lot of initials behind my name. You would think that with the initials, it would give me credibility, but not so. I constantly have to prove that. So fast forward to your question today. Has it changed? What has changed is not the fact that learning has changed. It's how we teach them that has changed. What I learned and you learned, we were in the industrial age where you sit in rows in your classroom, you know. You face the front of the room. Because when you think about the, indust- the, the age of working where the industry that came up, up where you manufactured cars in an assembly line. And so you sat in an assembly line almost, same kind of mirroring that was going on. But ultimately, we learned. Today, students are not getting ready to sit in nobody's, you know, just sit down and, and wait for somebody to, to do that, you know. They're, they're going to want to move around. So I think that what happened, um, they now put students in groups or clusters. Back then, we would have been called cheating if we looked on somebody else's paper or discussed it, right? Mm-hmm. And so today, they actually let, let you sit in a group and talk to your friends and discuss what should happen. What, what, what do you have to do and that kind of thing. And um, I guess the, the thing I'm trying to say is that you have to have an opportunity where you move from independent work to group work because businesses are looking for people who could collaborate, who can talk to another person and develop an idea about, you know, what we want to do, how we want to do it. And if you don't have that kind of mindset, when you get a job today, they don't, uh, I guess they don't want you to be there like that. They don't want you to be in an isolated situation. They want you to come to the table and talk. And our children today now, to me, are going backwards because they text everything. Mm -hmm. They don't call anybody. We're losing the conversations of the world. 
So right now we're talking, Debbie, you and I, a real conversation. The younger people can text this conversation faster than we could talk it and, and have slangs all through it. So it's even worse when you think about when they go to college. I taught at a university part-time, and one of the colleges I taught at, this young man turned in a paper with enough slang in it, I couldn't even read what it was saying because I didn't understand it. And he wanted to know what was wrong with the paper. I said, sweetheart, I understand what you're trying to tell me, but it's not in English. And I think he was offended. But I had to explain to him, you can't, you, you, when you write a paper, if you go on a job and they ask you to write a letter to someone, you can't put this much slang in it. They won't get what you're talking about. And it's just the nature of where we are in education now. We, um, we, we, we want to be able to do those things to engage learners in a way that they learn because their learning style is different than what I just told you about sitting in rows, you know. And when we sit in those roles, we're kind of like doing our own thing, but the world today requires us to engage. And they're engaging with technology far more than I ever would have, but that's how they learn. So learning today, the, how we teach them has to be different because it has to accommodate their needs. You know what I mean? I do, and I'm sitting here thinking, I went to private school too, but back in the day then, we actually sat around, it was called the Harkness table. It was a big round table, and there might have been 12 really? of us. And it was, it was interesting because the guys had ties, you know, white shirt, shirts, button-up shirts and ties and jackets, but they could have been wearing shorts under the table. Um, so there was discipline. There was Real, I mean, these were very, very bright mm -hmm. students, and that was the first time, and I think I've said this before on the show, where I went from the top of my class in my little school up in Vermont to the bottom third of the class and really struggled because I was up against the top students in the country, and it was difficult. Wow. Um, I had to learn. But we did talk. We did have a relationship with the, with the teachers. And I heard you talking about that once about on another podcast where you've talked about how we have to sit and listen to the kids. You have to have a relationship to the kids. You're not just the figurehead in front of the classroom, you know, the control freak mm -hmm. in front of the classroom. Uh, can you kind of explain? No, you, you're not. You, you cannot be the, uh, the, the person, the sage on the stage kind of thing. You've got to be the guide on the side. You have got to decide that you are going to share that knowledge in a way that they get it, number one, and allow them an opportunity to ask you questions about what you're telling them. You cannot just pour it in their head. So what I do today is called restorative practices. This is a practice by which you teach your students how you want to be treated and they tell you how they want to be treated so that the relationship is found, founded on mutual respect, mutual trust. And if I like you, Debbie, I'm going to learn from you. If I do not like you, I'm going to give you hell every day. So the way I get to like you is to get to know you a little bit better. And I'm not talking about personal, intimate things, simple things. For instance, let me show you something, Debbie. So I'm going to be the teacher, and you're my student. And we have another guest. Uh, can you unmute Debbie that came on earlier? Is she there? I can. Let's see if she's there. So, Debbie, if I'm a teacher, and this is our first week, our first six weeks of school, and I want to get to know you. You don't know me. I don't know you. 
So I might start by saying, welcome to my class. This is fourth grade science. It's really nice to have you two Debbies here. And so we're going to every morning get to know each other a little bit better for the next six weeks so that by the end of six weeks, you'll know something about me and I'll know something about you. I'm going to start first. My name is Dr. Gay Lang. I am your fourth grade teacher. And if I had a superpower, my superpower would be that I would be invisible. Hey, Debbie Johnson, if you had a superpower, what would your superpower be? I'd fly. Wow. Yeah, you can get to places fast, too. Okay, the other Debbie, what would your superpower be? I would be a dolphin in the ocean. <laughs> Oh, a dolphin where you can swim fast. Oh, good job. Wow, we are really doing some great things. I like those superpowers. I'm going to keep those in mind. Next week, we're going to ask a different question. So by the end of six weeks, I'm going to know your favorite food, your superpower, your favorite color, your favorite movie, if you like to dance, if you're the oldest, if you're the youngest, if you have a dog, if you have a cat, if you don't have a pet. All those things we're going to learn about each other, they're very easy things to know, but they're very helpful when I need to talk to you about things. We have other conversations other than things that's about the lessons that we're going to learn this year. Thank you so much for sharing. Now we're getting ready to start our class. Do you see how that looks? Wow. That's extraordinary. How do you, do you get pushback from the teachers when they have 25 kids in their class? I mean, classes are pretty big now. Do you know it only takes one minute to do that? With 22 children in the room, it takes exactly one minute. Maximum one minute, 30 seconds, because everyone fantasizes about doing something. You're picking topics that students want to say something about. And you tell them, we're not going to take but a minute of our time to do this. It's called the one minute get to know you. And it engages And the them. reason you do – right, because you – you can't teach someone who you don't know well enough to teach except books. They're, they're people. Who are those little people sitting in your seats? Who are those children? You may not know every single thing about them, but at least you want to know cursory things such as their favorite movie, if they have a dog, if they have a cat. What's their favorite color? color. If they had a superpower, what would it be? If they have a superhero, what, who is that? Just think about it. You just popcorn it all the way around the room and say, thank you for participating, and next week or tomorrow is going to be this. Get excited with them so that they're engaging too, and they look forward to it. And the only reason I know it works, I've done it a million times. Mm -hmm. And teachers do it. I train them to do it as well. Teachers who engage with students in a restorative practice model was what I just showed you. It's getting to know them. They actually have better classroom management because the kids respect them differently, because the students feel like my teacher cares about me. She knows me. For instance, if it was high school, what if I knew I had a high school student that worked at McDonald's? Because in our go-rounds, he was saying, I have a job. And then I find out that he gets off from McDonald's 11 or 12 o'clock at night, goes home, sleeps a little while, and gets up and go to school. He's tired. So when he comes to my class, he's asleep half the time at least the first few minutes, because he's tired. I'm his first class period. Wouldn't it be nice if I said, look, James, I know that you worked last night and you worked late. Look, I understand, but will you do me a favor? I'm going to give you a second or two to gather yourself because I know you're not quite ready. 
So just sit quietly, whatever you need to do to get yourself together, and I'll come back to you in a few minutes and get you started on the class. Is that okay with you? Help me help you now, James, because I don't want to be upset with you, and I want you to be upset with me. I realize you're working. I get that. So give yourself a few minutes to gather yourself, and I'll be back with you. Versus you in my class again, you late to my class again, well, you can just get out of here. So Mm -hmm. you can put them out. That doesn't solve the problem. He'll be back tomorrow with the same issue. So work with them until they get to a good place where you could kind of say, okay, I know you're tired, but you have to pass my class. So what do I need to do? Can you come later on? Let me help you with something. Can you come to tutoring? You begin to engage with them in a different way in a restorative model. The restorative model requires you to build relationships with people. The restorative practices model can be used at home with your children. It can be used with your husband. You don't have to say I'm using a restorative model with you, but when you negotiate something with your children, like, okay, I know you don't want to clean your room now, but I will give you a few minutes to get yourself together, or can you have it cleaned by five versus if you don't clean your room, I'm punishing you. Over time, you begin to develop a language that is relational so that there's no major conflicts. The the idea of cutting down on conflicts is important. Because that is how people grow. You cannot grow in conflict. It's just not possible because you're constantly battling something. So the restorative practices model that I work with in schools throughout Texas and the United States is to build relationships between teachers and students that are meaningful and respectful and create a dialogue and a way to talk without being angry all the time. There's another way to engage without being angry. It's so true. I'm thinking back to when I, when I, my kids were little and we were, I was in the schools. And, uh, but the big word for me, and I wrote this even before we started the, the interview, was respect. I found yeah. early on, this is probably 20 years ago, that when the kids came in, there was no respect for the, for the teacher. And that's not no. something they learned from being, being a child. That's something they learned at home. Every child comes to school with their own set of problems. If you have 22 children, I guarantee you have 22 sets of problems coming in your room. They, students in general today, have adult-sized problems they're facing. Mm -hmm. Some of them actually work to take care of home, to pay bills. Some of them don't have a parent at home that's really giving them guidance. Some parents are there but can't do it because they're busy trying to make two pennies rub together to pay bills. So today's world offers a monumental task of dealing with a whole lot of reality really quickly. And add on top of that COVID, Mm. now you really have some problems. So what I say to parents, and I do parent conferences as well, I teach parents how to work with their children themselves. Because if you work at home and then I'm working at school, the partnership begins to where the student gets the best of both worlds. It's not going to happen overnight because none of this happened overnight. It's going to take time to engage the students and engage your children in a way that is going to, in the long run, benefit everyone in the household or in the classroom. For instance, the parent conference that I did with about 60 parents, I taught them the I messages, how to speak to your children without getting totally to a place where you are frustrated 
and you don't let them get you there because you begin teaching them early what the expectations are. I don't think parents sit down and say, well, I expect you to do this, I expect you to do that, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and they follow it right away. Not going to happen. But what you can do is begin to engage them differently. So one of the things I teach parents are I messages, and simple, like, for instance, let's just say you have a third grader who uh, comes uh, home from school and uh, he eats cereal or whatever they eat, and they leave the the bowl on the floor in the living room or something like that. You know, kids do that. So instead of you saying, why did you leave that bowl back? Go pick that up. You're messing up my house. You shouldn't have that on the floor. So, John, you left the bowl in the living room. I would prefer if you put it in the sink. I feel concerned when you do that because then you're going to attract ants in the house. So please don't do that. Can you put that bowl in the kitchen when you're done. If you can't remember to do that in the kitchen, will you give me an opportunity to tell you and remind you, and then you cannot get upset because I'm reminding you. Is that okay with you? You, you show them the process that's going to happen. You know, Even though they might know it, you articulate it. You can't assume they've made all those dots, and even if they did, you're going to remind them anyway because you don't want it like that. So, John. Or James, did you 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 left you left the bowl there? I would like for you to pick it up. Thank you so much, and thank you for cooperating. I appreciate it. Conversely, the child may say to the mom, "Mom, in the morning, I have to ask you about my lunch money. Can you put it on the counter because then you don't want me to ask, and I'm late for the bus when you dig it in your purse." So something like that could happen. So a student or a child has the right to say, "Mom, I need help too." I feel worried when I don't have my lunch money out on the counter. I don't have whatever because then I'm going to miss my bus. So both sides, it's not just one-sided. They're beginning to engage in respectful conversation versus yelling conversation. I don't know if that made sense to you, the scenario. It absolutely, it absolutely does. I love what you're talking about because I, I see it working. I see it working with children. I see it working with adults. And I have a friend who passed away last year. Her name was Marty Ward. And Marty had a program called TAGS, which was she used talents, abilities, and gifts. And confidence, it was confidence building so that kids wouldn't be bullied. She took it to Africa. It was embraced immediately, but they had to go to the families to train the parents how to do it first. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Same thing with Mm -hmm. this. Yes, yes, yes. And... It goes back to that assembly line worker uh, thing. When I told you about we were, I, my chair was sitting in a row and I faced the front, the nuns were in the front of the room, that's where my focus was. And back then, that assembly line worker kind of mentality, building the car on assembly line. And now we're fast forwarding, everything is more modern, technology, the age of technology is different. So if the age of technology brought more to the household via internet, you have to bring more to the table. See what mm-hmm. I mean? As mm-hmm. a parent, you can't keep the assembly line thought in your head. You have to now do the technology piece of how you're going to connect these dots. And to be able to connect the dots requires you as a parent to step out of your comfort zone, give some of the space to your child to speak so that they can respect your voice when you speak. What I love that you do, is, and this I loved about you, and I've got so many friends that think the same way, that we 
we learn from each other, and, and I put in one of the show notes here, it's our differences are our strengths. If oh, we can yes, recognize where we come from, but we're so much alike. I, I love the phrase sisters by other misters because yes. <laughs> we are. It's regardless of, of you know, where we live, what we look like, what, you know, as, as soon as we can spend a little time together and learn, like you said, learn about your, your superpower or your favorite meal or that you have a dog or play the piano. Something is going to connect you know, I can't wear high heels, but I love them on you. <laughs> um, yeah. But as, as soon as we learn about each other, that's where the cooperation and the, I have friends that call it coopetition. I mean, it's, it's not competition. We're learning about each other. We're, we're growing from each other. And I love what you're doing. I, it, is what you're teaching, this whole restorative practices, is that, a norm around the country now or was that particular? It's a big deal right now. People okay. are doing that everywhere. A lot of school. Texas is the only state that rolled it out statewide. Yep, we're Texas and we do it big. Uh, Kate Prannis is one of the leading ladies and founders of this who pushed it out the door along with Mark Umbright and um, Ron and Roxanne Clausen. These are some of the people that pushed it out the door early on to begin to be into the spaces of the prison system. Mm -hmm. So restorative practices actually came out of working in the prison system to restore prisoners of crime, where you got to talk to the person you committed the crime against, they got to talk to you to find out why you did it, and it's all about restoring and repairing the harm you've done to someone. I wanted to go there for a minute because I interviewed a, a gal a couple weeks ago. She was actually a law enforcement, former law enforcement out of Nashville. She was a victim twice of sexual assault and now is an advocate for Silent No Longer. She and I had a lot in common from you know my story being a victim survivor of uh, relationship fraud. You know, I asked her, I said, what is the difference between what a victim feels is restorative or judgment and what law enforcement feels. And I have a son who made some poor choices and ended up in the system. And I know as a parent, um, when I sat in court for the first time and just wanted to talk to him and started to whisper and then got shut down by a law enforcement officer, who had the power to do so, and I'm thinking, yep. you, don't, you don't know who I am. Not that I'm any better, but you, you, you don't know my story. You don't know my son's story. You don't know that his dad just died. And I'm thinking, why aren't we talking? There's no talking. And, and the difference in the victims, it turns out, that we just wanted to be heard. You know, there law you enforcement go. wants Everybody to put the guy in jail. That. We all want to be heard. Right. And isn't that the whole basis to this is we all want to be listened to and our side heard. It may not be the, the ours might not be the, the right side. There's no right side. There's two sides. But isn't, doesn't it come down to just listening and wanting to be heard? Everyone has a voice and their voice should be heard. The issue that we face, restorative practices tells you respecting people's voice and not judging them on what they have to say and allowing them to speak their truth, not Gay Lang's truth, Debbie's truth. 
I don't have a right to, Debbie, to decide your story isn't worth hearing. I don't have a right to judge your story. I just have the right to listen intentionally to what you have to say. As a victim or as a perpetrator of a crime, repairing the harm is the first step in being sorry that you did something. I am sorry that I hurt you, Debbie. I'm so sorry it caused you grief, Debbie. Whatever my sorrow is and apology is to you, you need to hear that because that helps clean up. I need that hole filled. You need to fill that hole with an apology or if not an apology, I need to understand the why. Mm -hmm. I just want to know the why. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, much younger than I am today, I lived in this apartment uh, two-story. I was downstairs and the landlady was upstairs and I was teaching in Los Angeles. And I came home, and all my lingerie was thrown all over the backyard, and back door was broken in, and I was so frightened because I didn't know who had done it, why, and then I thought about it. I knew exactly who had done it. The gentleman at the store, whenever I stopped in the evening, I got this potato chips and soda every evening. It was my little routine, you know. That was my going home relaxing kind of thing. my comfort food. So, and this man would look me up and down, up and down. I couldn't stand him because of the way he looked at me. But I would go in there, run in there, get my little soda and my chips and come on home. And I went down to the store after I got home and he was had such a smirk on his face. So I knew he had done it. He didn't steal anything. He just threw my lingerie all over the place. I always wanted to know why did you do that? What was the purpose of that? Were you trying to frighten me? Were you threatening me? What were you doing? I was too young to know how to articulate that then, but I wasn't too young to cuss him out. I will say that. (laughs) I told him all he was worth and his mama, his dad, everybody. Just talked about the whole thing. But now, again, I was in my 20s. Today, I would have approached him and asked him the why part, and I would have probably said, don't threaten me because I'm not afraid of you. But back then, at 20-some-odd years old, you don't have that kind of wickedness, and you're angry. So I'm 70 now, so I have a whole new perspective. I've lived much more life. But the victims always want to know, why did you do it? And that is the healing piece for them. And the people who committed the crime or did the, had the problem, it relieves them. They, they fi- finally get it off their chest. They finally confess. They finally find a way to let it go. And those pieces of restorative practices in terms of juvenile justice system and criminal justice systems help to heal both sides. It doesn't always work that way. They're, the two people want to get together. Some of them don't. Some of them don't even look at each other ever again. They just want them to go away. But there are cases where they do want to know. And when those cases happen, it helps to heal both sides. I've heard of stories where the victim became friends with the perpetrator and wrote some letters in prison. Yeah. I've heard all kinds of cases. So it's a healing process to be able to do it, number one. It brings closure, number two, and it repairs that harm. See what I mean? And everybody wants that. And if you fast forward that to schools, that's the same thing. The school of prison pipeline is being filled because we keep suspending the kids for things that they may or may not know how to do or we may or may not be able to teach them. We teach children how to read every single day, Debbie, how to do math, how to write. Every day we teach these skills. And if they don't know how to do it, you know what we do? We remediate. We teach them again. 
And if they don't know it, we practice with them again. How is it we cannot practice with them what the behavior looks like? Why, we, why, why can't we do that part? Why can't we say, I know you're coming from a home where this doesn't exist. I can't control what happens at home, but in this classroom, I can. I can help you be a better student by showing you what's expected here. And if you could do that part with me, we're going to have a great year. See what I mean? I'm so, right there with you. I wish, we had, I wish we had a, you know, a, a million of you <laughs> in all the classrooms. <laughs> Because it's so true, and, and I'm thinking back and going back to, to the jails even, when they're sitting inside because they've been kicked out of school and now, you know, they're, they're, they've gotten in trouble, they've made bad, ineffective behaviors, they're behind bars, they're not doing anything back there. They're, you know, they may have a limited number of books, but there's no training, there's no encouraging, they're just corralled. And it used to frustrate me to no end that we have this pool of of young men and young women who have made mistakes but have potential and we're doing nothing to train them to be better when they get out. And then when they get out, we expect them to be better and they don't know how to deal with things. And then you've got these, you know, the law enforcement, which I love, but some of them just look down on these kids thinking, well, you'll be back, you'll be back. And we're like, why do you think that? What have we well, dropped the ball on here? Uh, you know? Go ahead. We, they come back, Debbie, because of three reasons, in my opinion, and I could be totally wrong. This is just me mm-hmm. analyzing it over and over in my head a thousand times in different directions, and I keep saying, okay, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I go back to my own self. One of the things that happen is when young children make poor decisions and end up in juvenile hall or someplace uh, of that nature, uh, they have – a choice while they're in there to improve, if they can, by getting into – there are some programs inside of juvenile halls that may or may not be offered in all of them, but some, excuse me, some of them offer, you know, where they can learn how to do a skill or a trade, some of them, not all of them. Uh, also, that's one thing, building juvenile facilities that offer something while they're in there. That's one thing I think about. And if they don't all have it, they should have some kind of skill training. You know what I mean? If sure. you want to learn how to be a paramedic, a fire department, or if not any of those things, electrician, uh, uh, you know, apprentice of some sort. Mm-hmm. Try to teach them a skill so when they do walk out, they can walk out and actually get a job doing something productive. The second thing is if you can do no, no more than – Help them learn how to write resumes, if not a resume, a letter of intent to work. Help them learn how to do interviews on a job while they're in there. Practice in it. Have an interview session class once a week and say, we're going to practice interviews so when you leave, you can learn how to get a job. That's the second idea that I had. The third thing I thought about, if you can't teach them a skill and interview with them, teach them how to interview or write a resume, the least you can do for them when they leave is say, I know that when you leave, you're going to be looking for a job or you want to get back in school. I would love to come back to school with you. I'll give your school a call. Would you like for me to call anyone and tell them something good about you? Offer a reference. There are little bitty small things like that that they can do to help transition them back to the world or the workplace or to the school environment. And of course, they're not all saints when they're in there. I'm sure they do stuff when they're there. But 
offer ways to manage your behavior, offer ways to handle that. And I think there are some anger management classes that they offer, I think, and some of them, I'm not sure, but I've heard some of them offer some like anger management classes or stuff like that. Well, maybe go a little step further, offer them more frequently, you know, there's ways to help them while they're there. And if you can't do all of that, at least offer them something on the way out. And this is just my thinking. It doesn't mean that it's the right thing. It's just the ideas I have about how to improve something. And that was, those are some of the things I think about all the time. But it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean that none of it happened. It may be happening. I don't know about it. But those are just some ideas I had. I think you and I in the next lifetime are going to have that, that mission together because <laughs> That went through my mind so many times. Like there's so many things that could be done. They might be in some particular areas. They're not necessarily in our area. Um, but because it, we're not talking about it, people don't talk about it, it's not ever going to get yeah. changed. And that's true about the yeah, I think. Yeah, I think schools are talking more, more about discipline because we're, we're seeing the, the result of not doing a good job with it. And I can't ask teachers to do any more than they're doing. I can't ask them to be police officers, therapists, counselors. I can ask them to be concerned enough to get to know their students in a way that the students know that they care about me, that they know that my favorite color is blue, that they know that I'm from from a family of 12 and I'm the oldest, that they know I have to work part-time and I might come to class a little late, that they're going to give me a chance to catch up with my work. When someone knows that you care about them, they begin to respond to you differently. It's very difficult to respond to someone who's kind, respectful, or concerned about you in a negative way. And it's not going to happen overnight. Kids don't respond overnight. None of these things happen. It may take you a good two or three months to break it, but you'll break through if you hang in there with the student and they realize that you do truly care. And the greatest thing, Gay, is that if you start them when they're little, they're going to grow up feeling the same way because that's something yeah. that you've learned from the inside and it changes yeah. you as a person. And I think at our age, you know, by the time they get to our age, it'll be part of them and they won't be looking mm-hmm. at people differently or looking down or being angry or being so, I mean, I've certainly mellowed over the years. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know, you mellow out when you get older. <laughs> well, because we know tomorrow, today could be our last day. So to be angry yes, about ma'am. something or to hold grudges, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just takes years off your life when you're angry every day. Every day you wake up angry or concerned about something else or you want to fight somebody, want to be mad with somebody, want to pick a fight, you're just taking years off of your life. That's right. all you're doing. I'm nobody's worth those years for me. So I am not angry with anybody. If you do me something, hurt my feelings, whatever you do, I might ask you why or don't do it again or I didn't appreciate it. But I've already forgiven you because I have to be forgiven for the things I do. So I'm going to forgive you. And not only that, if you're that kind of person, I'm going to make sure you're not in my space because I don't need to have negative going on. I've, I've got a, I'm 70. I'm way past the other side of 50. So I'm, I don't have a lot of good years on the other end except the ones I create for myself. So I'm not letting anybody steal any of those. I love you, Gay. You're my new best friend. I just, I'm just sitting here. Just, I'm looking at your beautiful picture with your, your blue jacket and your, your yellow, and that's the bluebird. She's my bluebird today. Yeah. And uh, I love your attitude, and it's so true. There's, we are so much on the same page. 
And uh, that's what I love about putting ourselves around people that just think, you know, and have heart. And, and I so appreciate you for being here, and I'm really grateful that I met you in Dallas. I wish you all the success. Oh, with Debbie, I think about you a lot in Dallas because you were with your daughter and your grandkids. I remember <laughs> you telling me that story. So I thought about you a lot. So when you reached out to me, I was like, oh, I remember Debbie and your shoe breaking, and I had shoes to break, and I was telling you about how my shoe broke. So we had a really good conversation. So I remembered you vividly. Well, we had a great time, and I look forward to doing more stuff with you uh, in the future, especially you know, with what you're doing with the restorative practices. I think that is such an excellent philosophy, and, and I don't have kids in school anymore, but I do have grandchildren, and this is something that will benefit them in their homes uh, as well as in their schools. So thank you, my dear. How can people get a hold of you if they want to do some follow-up? Um, I can give you my number, and I also can give you my web page again. My number you could call is 713-901-9304 if you want to leave a voice message and I call you back. I also have a podcast called Workplace Diversity, Your Workplace Diet, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Tolerance. That's airing right now, and it's on iTunes, of course, and that's Workplace Diversity with Dr. Gay Lang. I also have a business called Workplace Restorative Practices, Inc., which is my webpage name as well, www.workplacerestorativepracticesinc.com, where you can see some of the trainings that I offer in restorative practices in the workplace or in the business space. Similar to what we do in school with a little bit of a twist to it because you're dealing with more adults and you can give them more tools that they can use to reduce conflict. It's perfect. And for fun... Gay's going to go listen to an Audible on her way to the grocery store, but we're going to go to Amazon and get her book called Seven, A Sorority Story. I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing. So thank you, my dear. Thanks for being my special guest today and for joining us from, from Houston. I look forward to seeing you again in person one of these days. Uh, yes, but ma'am. Thank you for standing up and speaking up and, and being there for the kids and being there for their families and being there today for me. I really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, Check out our Benfoteaming products at benfocomplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on Amazon.com and Audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day.